Well, it's my pleasure to add my welcome to uh, Vanessa's to this carol service. And we have been royally entertained this evening, whether it's with uh, all the effort that's gone into the decorations uh, of the building, uh, whether it's the musicians or Matthew the conductor or the choir or the soloists or the uh, string quartet uh, in the foyer. Uh, I know we've given one round of applause, but this is our opportunity to say thank you and well done to everybody who's made tonight possible. And not forgetting also, because if I don't thank them, they will turn my microphone off, uh, the people on the audio-visual technical desk right up there in the balcony who've put many hours putting tonight together as well. Let's give them a special round of applause as well. I'm just a bit afraid of these lights going on and off in front of me that, you know, if I preach for too long, they will start to send me a signal um, just saying, get off. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this time of year where we can gather, where we can hear familiar readings, where we can sing familiar carols, but where, again, we allow you to take us by surprise with this, the oldest of stories. And we come again this year hoping, daring, believing, that what we have heard in the readings, what we have sung in the carols, is true. That you came down to earth 2,000 years ago. We pray now that you might meet us afresh as we take a few moments to stop, to reflect, and to think. May we see Jesus for who he really is. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to speak this evening about the person that I think is the forgotten person in the Christmas story. There are perhaps in every drama uh, people who are forgotten, people who aren't named. I have to confess uh, before you this evening that I am a huge fan of Star Trek. Um, Star Wars, not so much, but Star Trek I absolutely love. I remember the original series. I know I don't look old enough, but I do. Um, and I remember all the film uh, that came out. remember The Next Generation and, and even Enterprise that went before the original series. And then the reboot uh, that's just happened uh, with the two new films and with the ability to make all the stories all over again. Something that my family is absolutely thrilled by uh, at the prospect of me sitting through a whole lot of more Star Trek episodes and films. But the people who were always forgotten in Star Trek were the people who wore red. Now, I've been told to wear red because it's the theme of our Christmas uh, staging. Um, but the people who wore red in Star Trek you never discovered what their names were. Here's a, a scene from the latest film uh, with Khan, played by Benedict Cumberbatch in the middle, uh, surrounded by security guards in red. And there is only one thing absolutely certain from that still photograph, is that all four people wearing red will die in the next 30 seconds. <laughs> when you saw... 
Kirk and Spock go down to a planet with two security guards. They didn't even tell you the names of the people who were wearing red because you knew that within the first two minutes, those two guys were dead. They were going to get killed by an alien. They were going to have a rock fall on them. They were going to fall down a valley or a chasm. But something bad was going to happen to them. That's why we have at P's and G's here our welcome team dressed in red for exactly the same reason. The opening scenes of Casualty will see a whole list of forgotten people. Maybe like me, you sit watching the first five, six, seven minutes thinking, who of these characters is about to die? Who is going to have most horrendous accident? It's going to be somebody whose name you don't know, whose face you don't recognize, whose story you do not care about. The people who are forgotten in Casualty are the ones who end up in the most trouble. Then there are the forgotten people in history. Who can remember the fifth Beatle? Pete Best was his name. Then there are the people who failed the auditions for Take That. I know, they did have auditions for Take That. People who failed the auditions for Boyzone. People who failed the auditions for the Spice Girls. They were really bad. And the people who failed the auditions for the X Factor that no one can remember. Or come to think of it, the people who won the X Factor <laughs> that no one can remember. Come to think of it, this year's winner of the X Factor that I can't even remember. Then there are the forgotten people in sport, not the BBC Sports Personality of the Year that you're missing. And even now, some of you are recording at home. But people like who else scored a goal for Scotland against Holland in 1978? Yes, we remember Archie Gemmell, but who scored apart from Archie Gemmell? Who were the other squad members of England's World Cup win in 1966 who had to wait 41 years to get their medals? And in the opinion of many Scots, who cares? <laughs> and then there are the people in history whose names we don't know and will never know. The names of the German and British soldiers who played football in no man's land in Christmas 1914. We've seen the photographs. And in this year of all years, there are all sorts of poignant reminders of that occasion when Sainsbury's advert notwithstanding, Silent Night drifted across from trench to trench. And then eventually both sides came out of their trench and played football with each other, exchanged presents with each other, exchanged photographs with each other, and then went back to shooting one another. And then there are the unknown heroes of what we've gathered to remember here this evening, the ancient Christmas story. Yes, there are the shepherds. Yes, there are the wise men, but apart from some best guesses, we don't know their names. What about the names of the innocents, hundreds of firstborn sons who were slaughtered by Herod? All these remain unknown. The Bible does not tell us the names of the shepherds. The Bible does not tell us the names of the wise men. It doesn't even tell us how many there were. The Bible does not tell us the names of the hundreds of the innocents slaughtered by Herod, 
as he sought the baby Jesus. But perhaps the real hidden hero of the nativity, in my mind at least, is Joseph. Even in one of the carols that we heard earlier on, we were told it would be Mary who would shape Jesus' character. It would be Mary who would provide for Joseph, for Jesus. Joseph, the dad, simply gets no looking. The Bible records no words from the lips of Joseph. Unlike other characters like Zechariah or Elizabeth or Mary or Anna or Simeon in the Christmas story, there are no words from Joseph. There is no song. There are no prayers. There are no prophecies. And he slips out of the story without any mention even of his death. So what do we know of Joseph? Well, traditionally, he's known as a carpenter. The Greek word that's actually used there is the word tekton. It's the word that we, in fact, get technology from. So, yes, he could be a carpenter, and maybe he was. But it could also mean that he was an artisan or a craftsman in wood or iron or stone. A carpenter conjures up a picture of some chippy at B&Q. Joseph was much more than that. He was a craftsman, perhaps a maker of fine furniture. There's even speculation that he took part in helping to rebuild and work on one of the temples and the synagogues in Jerusalem. Named after the greatest dreamer in history, the one with a coat of many colors, Joseph was someone of imagination and design. We know very little else about him. He was engaged to Mary in a marriage that would have been arranged by their families, perhaps from when Mary was as young as five or six years of age. And then on that day, Joseph's world came to a juddering, shuddering crash. As Mary pulled him aside, during their year of betrothal, when you had to get a divorce to become unengaged. They went through this year of betrothal so the couple could get to know each other before they actually got married to one another. And during this year of betrothal, Mary pulls Joseph aside one day and says that she's pregnant. And then the rumors begin. Have Mary and Joseph had sex outside marriage? Somebody that, something that was incredibly frowned upon in that culture? Something that was punishable by death, by stoning, both for the man and the woman? Or perhaps Mary had been raped by a passing Roman soldier. She was just a girl. She was just a Jewish girl. And for an occupying army, there were loads of them. And they could use them however they wanted and sadly still do. Either way, Mary was now damaged goods. She had to be divorced. Joseph knew that in Roman law, in Greek law, in Jewish law, the legal requirement was that he had to divorce his fiancée. If he didn't, then there were some implications for him and for Mary. For him, well, he wouldn't get the dowry or the bride price back. There would be a financial loss for Joseph if he didn't divorce Mary. 
And worse than that, if he didn't divorce Mary, then the fingers really would start to point. It wasn't a passing Roman soldier. No, it really was Joseph. And that would mean that Joseph would have to share Mary's shame, Mary's dishonor in a culture, a Middle Eastern culture, where even today honor is incredibly important. And we observe at times so-called honor killings. Joseph knew what the law demanded. But then he discovered what God demanded. That God was asking more of him than the law demanded. God was to ask that he showed risky, daring, shocking, prodigious love. Extravagant love. That Joseph showed a glimpse of what years later would be called grace. And how did Joseph respond? Well, Matthew tells us that he considered it. Mary leaves Nazareth and goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth. And I hadn't really realized, I've read this story many times, but I hadn't really realized until this week that in fact that meant as Mary left Joseph, that Joseph was alone in Nazareth carrying the can. And Mary was away seeing her cousin Elizabeth for three months. So when it says Joseph considered this, the implication is that Joseph is thinking what he should do for three months. Three months to ponder. Three months to think. That word consider has various meanings. It can mean to consider. It can mean to ponder. It can mean to think. But it can also mean to fume. There's a sense of betrayal in that word. There's a sense of disappointment. So did Joseph fume for three months as he took all the rumors, as he took all the gossip, as he took all the sideways glances while Mary was off visiting her cousin for three months. She's told him that this is no ordinary child. She's told him that this is God's child. And maybe during those three months, Joseph begins to think. He gets through his anger. He gets through his betrayal. He gets through his disappointment. He gets through his despair. And maybe he starts to think. Maybe he starts to wonder. What if it's really true? What if what Mary has said really is true? What if Mary is telling him the truth? What if the incredible really has happened? Why would she make something like that up? And Matthew goes on to tell us that while Joseph is considering what to do, something happens that changes everything. Joseph has a dream. That's what happens to people called Joseph in the Bible. They have dreams. And it's striking that Joseph doesn't need an angel to appear in front of him physically, if an angel can appear physically. 
Joseph simply has a dream. And in the dream, God confirms Mary's story. The baby that is inside Mary is God's child. And it is going to be a boy. And he is going to be called Jesus. And this is Emmanuel, God with us. The Gospel writers tell us only one detail about Joseph. They simply say he was a righteous or just man. Obviously, he's not the boy's genetic father. He had no wondering during Mary's pregnancy after he'd had that dream as to what the gender of the baby was. Would it be a boy? Would it be a girl? He had no discussion with Mary. Well, what should we call him? Jacob? Benjamin? Zephaniah? Elijah? No, he will be called Jesus. Well, perhaps the clue lies in those two names that the baby is to be given. Firstly, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You know, I'm never amazed. I've been a Christian for about 35, 36, 7 years now. But I'm always still surprised about people who don't know about Jesus. There was a survey done a few weeks ago in a, a shopping center in Essex. It would be Essex. And to people's amazement, 25% of children who were asked in this survey thought that Jesus Christ plays football for Chelsea. Honestly, they think he plays football for Chelsea. They may have been getting confused with Jesus Navis, who plays for Manchester City, but they still got it wrong. I mean, of all the teams, he would never play for Chelsea. <laughs> but the name Jesus is significant. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew Yeshua, Joshua. It means God saves. And the angel in the dream tells Joseph he will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now that was good news, but it was also bad news. You see, the sort of Messiah that the Jewish people were looking for was not a Messiah who would save them from their sins. They wanted a Messiah who would save them from other people's sins. And nothing has changed in 2,000 years. You and I want a Messiah to save us from other people's sins. We're very good at highlighting other people's sins. I am an expert at highlighting other people's sins. It's my sins that I want, don't want to know about. If I'm honest, I'm not sure whether it's my sins that I want to be saved from. Because if I'm going to be saved from them, then I've got to fess up. I've got to acknowledge that I do sin, I do get things wrong, and I do need forgiveness. You see, we're very happy going on about other people's selfishness, other people's materialism, other people's indifference, other people's rebellion or distance from God. We're very happy to point out other people's sins. That's easy. But our sin, my sin, that's too uncomfortable. That's too close to home. But that's who Jesus is. God entering into our world and entering into our 
sin, sharing the consequences of our sin, paying the penalty for my sin, dying in my place for my sin. That's who Jesus is. Just like his earthly stepfather, Joseph, who steps into Mary's sin and shares Mary's sin. There is something of the family resemblance in Jesus, not just from his heavenly father, but also from his earthly stepdad, as he steps into a world of sin and shares my sin. Even though he knew no sin, he pays the price for my sin and for your sin. And we don't like that. We prefer a God who is remote. If we're honest, we prefer to be remote from God or perhaps from other people. It's easier, far easier, to take the higher moral ground, to point the finger. It's far tougher, more challenging, more demanding to stand side by side with the sinner. But that's the truth at the heart of the Christmas story. God becoming a human being, technically called the Incarnation. Something mocked by Greeks and Romans. To them, gods were different and superhuman like Thor. For Muslims, even today, the idea of God becoming a human being is impossible to conceive. Allah forever dwells above us. He is other. By contrast, the Christian faith uniquely claims that God becomes human. An unwanted pregnancy. A fetus. A frail, fragile, vulnerable baby whose nursery mates have four legs. He's born in a cave. He's wrapped in rags. He's targeted for death almost as soon as he is born. He's raised on the run as a refugee. And as a toddler, Joseph must have looked at him and wondered, will I ever A, be able to teach this boy anything? Because remember the second name that the baby is to be given. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Words written 800 years before the birth of Jesus through the prophet Isaiah. God with us. A God no longer distant or remote, but a God who literally comes down to our level, bringing wholeness and peace to relationships and communities. Did you see the report this week? So sad on the BBC. A report that showed that the figures were the same whether somebody is 30 or 80 as to whether they feel lonely. 30% of the people, and they asked nearly 2,000 people in the survey across the United Kingdom, 30% of people, irrespective of age, said that they often felt lonely in our society. It was Mother Teresa who said the greatest disease in the West is not leprosy or tuberculosis. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. She said we can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. The Christian faith sees loneliness as one of the consequences of sin. The separation and breakdown of relationships, of community and society between people, between nations, sometimes even from a person to their own selves. 
and ultimately between God and humanity. And the Christmas story proclaims God's way to heal that rift. God's offer to bring wholeness, peace, shalom to every single relationship. Peace with God, peace with other people, peace with each other, peace with ourselves and peace even with creation. God, the ultimate Christmas present, giving himself in love to humanity. And that's why we find the pictures of the German soldiers and the British soldiers playing football a hundred years ago in between the trenches to be so poignant because they remind us of our humanity, but they remind us of the fragility of our relationships. That one minute we can be playing football with somebody and the next minute we go back to shooting at them from another trench. We still need 2,000 years after Jesus was born to be reconciled to each other, to be reconciled to ourselves, and to be reconciled to God. And my simple hope this Christmas is that you, just like Joseph, will take time to consider your response to Mary's claim that what is born within her is divine. That like Joseph this Christmas, you decide to take the path of risky, daring, shocking, prodigious love. That like Joseph, you will decide that this baby is Emmanuel, God with us. God literally come down to our level to make it possible for you and I to enter into a healed relationship with God, to live life God's way on God's planet. And that ultimately that child who was born in Bethlehem is not simply a baby, but he is the baby above all babies, who was born as a baby, who lived a human life, but who died a human and yet divine death in order that you and I might be brought back into a relationship with God himself. Jesus standing with us in our sin. Jesus being born. Jesus dying. In order that you and I might know his life, might know his peace, might know his hope, might know his joy this Christmas and for every Christmas to come. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your amazing gift of yourself 2,000 years ago. But thank you that you still promise and offer to come to all those who call upon you, to all those who recognize their own failure, who recognize their own weakness, who recognize their own rebellion against you, who recognize that we, that I, am a sinner, that we need your forgiveness, that we need reconciling, reconciling with you and ourselves and each other. And so we pray for each other this Christmas that we might know Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins, that we might know Emmanuel, God with us.
and that that same light that shone in the darkness that first Christmas time would shine in our lives this Christmas.